Pray with me, friends. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and I humbly ask that you guard your word and just uh, help me to be a, a better vessel for your perfect word, Lord, and perfect my speech and my, and my mind as I present the, the word here, and just perfect the hearts of those in, in view of its hearing. And we just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. It's good to be here. I, you know, um, I could say this is my first sermon ever, but it's not. You missed it. That was at eight, so. <laughs> and uh, according to Pastor Kyle and Pastor Matt, I'm a professional now, right? That's, I don't know where they went, but that, that, no, that's not true. That's not true. My name is Brandon Howard, uh, and I'm a deacon here at Calvary Baptist Church, and I'm excited to have the opportunity to present the word to you this morning. Um, I'm really humbled by that. Uh, Pastor Kyle came to me uh, a few months back. I'm not sure when. It was cold out, so maybe November, late fall, somewhere in there. And uh, and he says to me, "Hey, would you uh, would you be interested in in preaching and doing pulpit surprise in February?" And he said some other things, but I I didn't know catch it because I was too busy saying yes. <laughs> I will do that. Um, and so since then, I've been meeting with Pastor Kyle and Pastor Matt, uh, and they've been a great blessing, great encouragement to me um, in preparing for this process. Um, and uh, I had a couple of other sermons, ideas along the way. I had a couple of bad ideas. Luckily, I got those figured out, and we got those scratched out. And then um, it was early January, and my dear friend Wyman Martin uh, comes to me, and ever the teacher, he asks, so if you had one sermon that you could ever preach on, what would you preach on? And you know, to be honest with you, I couldn't answer him at that time. And it took me a little while to figure out exactly the answer to that question, but that question drove me to Psalm 110, something that I've been studying, uh, teaching uh, Hebrews Bible study on Wednesday nights in the Timothy building. And I got to thinking about it, and I thought, if I were to preach on one thing, I boiled down preaching. What is all preaching supposed to be? To make Jesus known. And so once I had that perspective, I was able to to go to Psalm 110, um, this beautiful passage, just seven verses long, but you can see Jesus in every single line here. It's a magnificent, magnificent psalm, and I uh, I hope that you're encouraged by it as well today, as much as I am. So let me start by asking you this, as we turn into our Bibles to Psalm 110. It's after 109 and before 111. I don't know what page is, but I hope that's helpful to you. Um, Let me start out by asking you this essential question. Who do you know Jesus to be? All right. Now notice the wording of this question. I've heard this question asked the wrong way several times in my life. The most notable experience I've had where they've asked that question the wrong way uh, Megan and I were attending uh, the wedding of some friends of mine, and uh, we went to this church, and I, I knew who the pastor was by, uh, just by, um, you know, uh, reading her name in the newspaper a few times. She wrote in, it wasn't like in the arrest columns or anything, but she wrote in editorials, and I knew I wasn't too impressed with her editorials, so my expectations were pretty low to hear her in the pulpit. Um, and so we got there, and... Um, we're watching the wedding, you know, and, and the happy couples up there, and, and this gal's dragging on about this really shallow theology, really bad stuff. Hallmark would be ashamed of some of the stuff that she was saying, you know, about love. 
But that was about the depth of it. But what was really the, the worst part and the, stuff, the part that stuck out to me, right before the vows, she's extolling the, the happy couple, giving them advice about marriage and being, you know, this and that to, to your spouse. And, they say, and she says, and I hope that you can help each other find out who God is to you. And at that, Meg and I turned to each other in a look of alarm and disgust because if this lady doesn't know who God is, these two people sure doesn't have a chance, right? This is the person that's supposed to be responsible for equipping them and telling them who God is. And really, you can take all the mystery out of it. You don't have to go on a vision quest to find out who God is. You don't have to, to feel that and do the touchy-feely thing and feel, figure it out in your heart because it's laid out for us in Scripture. And one of the places that, uh, that I've really uh, enjoyed learning about who Jesus is, is in Psalm 110. So I'm going to read it, uh, read it in its entirety for you now. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So David had a lot to say about the coming Messiah. Because we do know that David wrote this psalm. And going, if you've ever spent any time in the book of Psalms, you know that the psalms are not just one cohesive book. They're a collection of poetry. 150 of these, of these poems or hymns uh, uh, written throughout a period of time. Most of them we can attribute to the man after God's own heart himself, King David. And David wrote this psalm. We know that uh, by the earliest traditions that arose out of Old Testament Judaism, they attributed it to King David. Um, and also we can take the word of Jesus himself who attributed this psalm to King David uh, when he quoted it um, in New Testament times. Because there's an interesting passage, I think it's in Matthew 22, if you want to read it sometime, uh, where Jesus questions the Pharisees and he asks them whose son the Messiah is. And of course the Pharisees give the answer, well, it's David's son, right? And so then Jesus points them to this psalm and he says, then why does David speak of the Messiah as my Lord, right? And so we know then that this is a psalm of David and we'll go into that a little bit more detail here in a minute. But we know that this is a psalm of David about the Messiah. And the exciting thing for us today in 2019 in Mount Pleasant, Iowa, this psalm, though written a thousand years before the birth of Christ, if you can wrap your mind around that, contains prophecies yet to be fulfilled and prophecies being carried out right now. So this isn't just a, a, a study in theory. This isn't just a study in history. This is a study in real time. This is, this is happening today all around us. And, it's, and David, of course, would never meet Jesus, but he was carried along by the Holy Spirit and he knew he could paint us a picture of who the Messiah would be, even though he would never ever meet him in person as he was writing this psalm out. And in this psalm, we, of course, Jesus focuses heavily, right? I've already kind of alluded to that quite a bit. This is a messianic psalm. Jesus is in every verse. But we also get a picture here where we can contrast Jesus' people and Jesus' enemies, or in David's language, the Messiah's people 
and the Messiah's enemies. So that's a good, good lesson for us to learn as well. Let's go ahead and get started in the first verse here. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So right away, that first line is kind of interesting, right? The Lord says to my Lord. That's kind of this weird, quirky uh, figure of speech, right? And that's kind of strange. But I want to point out two things. Right away, in this first part of this first verse, we meet the essential characters in this psalm. We meet the Lord, all caps Lord, and we meet Lord with just capital letter L. All right? Now, the Hebrews, uh, when they wrote this in the original language, they have different names for different things. They have different, uh, they have different names for God, as I'm sure many of you know. Um, and when you read through your Bibles, and most of the translations I've ever looked at, if you see it come across while you're studying in Scripture, in all caps, Lord, you know that this is the Hebrew rendering of Jehovah. All right? This is God's formal name that the Jews assigned to him as an amalgamation. That's an interesting study just to find out how, much, how they came up with that name. But that's not for today. But whenever the Jews used the, the term Jehovah, they were talking about God in relation to covenant Israel. All right? And they would use other words for God when dealing with the Gentiles. We're going to talk about a guy in a few verses called Melchizedek, that he was a priest of God most high. And that uh, word for God was Yahweh. So he was, it, was, it was the same God, but a different name that they applied because he was dealing with Gentiles outside of that covenant. So that's an important distinction to make. So we do know that Jehovah is, is the first character that we meet in this in this psalm. And every time we see all caps Lord, we're going to know that's him. And the second one is interesting too. Because the second one is not necessarily a name for God. The second Lord there is a Lord like you and I would assume a Lord to be. Like if we go across the pond to England and we go to the House of Lords and the House of Commons, it's, uh, it, this Hebrew word for this is Adonai, which is sovereign or prelate or someone high in the government, someone with authority that you would call Lord. Or master. So we've got Jehovah talking to my sovereign, is how that, is how that really reads and how that would read to the Hebrews and how David would read it. And so what's Jehovah saying to my sovereign? He's saying, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This, is, uh, this language is familiar to us. We often talk about Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father. That language shows up all over the New Testament. That language shows up uh, frequently in our prayers, in our prayer life, and also reading uh, different things and, and people's opinions on Jesus and things. But this, this language is really familiar to us. But I want to point out that that word sit does not mean, I don't want you to get the idea that Jesus is up there kicking back, relaxing in the lazy boy next to God on high, all right? He's not. We don't have to necessarily equate sitting with relaxing, right? When, uh, when I've been studying this, I was thinking of that word sit. And you can see this word uh, used, for example, when Jesus goes to Nazareth to preach in the synagogue. And he is handed the scroll of Isaiah. And Jesus reads from that scroll of Isaiah. It's a great story. He reads from that scroll of Isaiah. He furls it up. And what's he do? He sits down. It was common practice in, in, in Jesus' time for rabbis and teachers to read the word and then sit to teach about it, which I got to say has some uh, appeal because I'm getting a little bit tired. Going to have to find some Dr. Scholes for my shoes. But um, 
But that sitting there was in, in Jesus' even in the synagogue was a place of authority, right? The rabbis weren't taking a break and, and taking a load off. They were sitting in authority and teaching the word of God. And so we have the same picture of Jesus uh, at the right hand of the Father. He's still sitting, but he is sitting in authority and still active. And we'll see a little bit more of that activity here in just a little bit. And we see Jesus sitting at God's right hand. And this is an easy term for us to be familiar with. If you say to somebody, yeah, that guy, he's, he's my right-hand man. Everybody knows that phrase, right? It's somebody that's your right-hand man, that's your go-to guy or gal. That is the person that you trust with anything. They never let you down. And so that is a position of honor. And if anybody's ever called you your right, their right-hand man, you know that that feels pretty darn good, right? And so Jesus is at a position of honor there sitting in the throne room in the majesty of heaven right next to his father, Jehovah. And he's sitting there for a time. Because that next little word there, until, carries with it the connotation that he's not always going to be there, right? Certain things are going to happen, certain things are going to transpire, and then Jesus is no longer going to be sitting at the right hand of the Father. And we're going to see this activity here in a little bit play out in a few verses. But we do know that he's at there, he's sitting for a temporary time. And we do know that here, now, 2019, when we think of Jesus, don't think of him as a historical character, don't think of him as somebody that showed up on the scene 2,000 years ago and he's going to be coming sometime. He is there now living and active in the throne room in heaven. And he will be coming back. And we see there the, uh, the kind of the plan for Jehovah that he lays out for his son. You're going to sit there for a time until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And you get this idea that Jesus' enemies are going to be totally submissive. They're going to be completely made low, right? Because you're not going to take an enemy and then sit him in front of your chair and prop your feet on him if the enemy's still got some fight left in him, right? That'd be kind of a weird way to do things. But no, the enemies are made completely low, and we know that God is carrying out that plan right now in front of our very eyes. So in verse 1, we can see, if you're following along, if you want to jot down a note, verse 1, we can see Christ as exalted. We see Christ exalted, and that's where he's at right now. And verse 2, the Lord. So we know who's doing the action, right? We got this word study figured out. This is Jehovah. This is God the Father. He's doing the action. So the Father sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. And so we know uh, from Scripture and a lot of commentaries on this psalm, uh, this, this psalm has a lot of, like I said, prophecies yet to be fulfilled. And a lot of commentaries point that this is going to be uh, completely fulfilled in the second coming, right? And we see that played out in greater detail in the book of Revelation of Jesus coming down on Mount Zion and the Battle of Armageddon and issuing forth his, his uh, millennial reign and all that, all of that starting from the starting point in Israel. But I think it's more than that. I think that this is, there's some of this happening right now. And we know that, uh, um, not to say that this won't be completely fulfilled in the future because it will, but we know for sure that as Jesus is in heaven right now, that he is ruling in the midst of, of his enemies. Because we learn from verse 1, right, that the Messiah is not going to move from that spot until what? His enemies are made a footstool for his feet. 
But there's no time limit on this, is there? The Lord sends forth, it's an active. He sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule. That's present tense, in the midst of your enemies. So his enemies are still around. So what in the world could that possibly mean? What, what could that possibly look like? Friends, I think throughout the history of the church, we can, see this, we can see this playing out really easy. We think of the Holy Spirit coming down on Pentecost in the city of Jerusalem, going out to the apostles, and the apostles taking the word of God, taking the, the gospel out to the nations from that point, right? And he's spreading the mighty scepter, spreading the mighty works of Jesus throughout the world, and there is much, much contention. They have a lot to contend with, and we see that today, too. It's easy for us to forget that, um, that Christians are persecuted. It's, it's easy for us to forget that our brothers and sisters in Christ do not have the same levels of freedoms. Be thankful, friends, that we live in such a country. I know I'm very humbled when I think of all the freedoms that we, that we have. I mean, I think of this morning, I stopped at McDonald's uh, for a cup of coffee on the, on the way in before uh, first service, and it was... I, I was, you know, I'm all dressed up, and who in the, who in the right mind is going to be wearing a suit and tie to McDonald's on Sunday morning? It doesn't take much logic to figure out where I'm going or what I'm up to, right? I didn't have to hide it. I was there. I was in public. And I drove, and, and just like you guys did, you uh, parked out there in broad daylight, right? You walked right in, afraid of nothing, and nor should you be. We're living in absolute peace here. There's nothing, there's nothing here ready to persecute us on a, at bodily harm. And we take that for granted. But here in this map, friends, we can see these countries. And these countries, these, um, uh, this is put out by a group. This is the World Watch List. You can, you can look it up online. Um, I follow a website, uh, opendoorsusa.org, and they give aid to persecuted Christians uh, throughout the world. And uh, they, they come up with this list every year, and they have different metrics uh, for how bad things are, right? It's like kind of a score out of 100 um, and they have different metrics, and I'm not going to go into them in great detail there. But I just want to impress you how broad a territory that really is, right? And just think of, I mean, we see some of the most populated countries there. We see India, we see China. Uh, there's so much of the world's population that are under persecution right now. But I don't want to be all doom and gloom, friends, because we can take heart and know that the gospel is being spread in those countries, Jesus Christ is ruling in the midst of his enemies in those countries. Jesus Christ is, and his gospel is being proclaimed in those countries despite immense persecution. You read accounts of people in North Korea, number one on this list, by the way. Um, you read accounts of people in North Korea, just how clandestine they have to be, uh, where they don't even tell their children until they know for sure that their children won't betray them to the government. So intense is the scrutiny and so, uh, so, uh, so intense is the cult of the emperor there uh, for their leader that they, they are willing to betray their own parents. And they meet in secret and bury Bibles in the woods and they have to go to the woods to dig up the Bible to even have a worship service. But friends, there are over 300,000 Christians in North Korea. That is ruling in the midst of your enemies. So take heart, friends. Verse 2 teaches us and shows us Christ as ruler. And one more thing to add to that. We see in the, the last bit of Matthew. We know of the Great Commission, right? Everybody's, most people are familiar with the Great Commission. Most of you can probably recite it from heart. Go therefore and make disciples in all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
What's interesting, though, is the line right before that. So this is, if you want to, as a reference point, Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So that's our ruler, friends. He has been given authority, and he is ruling in the midst of his enemies. No matter how bad it looks, no matter how, what abortion laws get passed in New York, no matter who occupies the White House, no matter who's on Capitol Hill, Jesus Christ is the ruler of this earth. And in verse 3, we get to meet Messiah's people. This is exciting, right? This, is, this was exciting for me, too. It says, your people, this is Messiah's people, will offer themselves freely in the day of your power, in holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. What's interesting there is, again, this is the Messiah's people. And we see right away, even though uh, in the first two verses there already, which has said such rich detail, we can see Christ having authority. He has a rightful claim to rule over this world, but his people offer themselves freely, right? And that's one of the great mysteries of, of, of the faith to me is, that, is this idea that God knew you would be saved and called you from the foundations of the earth. But there's still a point where you have to make that decision to follow after Christ. It's a voluntary thing. And if we think back to all of our testimonies and when we came to faith in Jesus, we did it ourselves. Nobody was holding a gun to our head. Nobody was making us do that. We came to the realization that we needed a Savior, that we could not save ourselves, that our good works would never outweigh our bad works, that our sin would never be far from us, and that we needed a Savior in our lives, and we came freely to Him. So what a beautiful picture of the church that is. And two, again, not to... Not to um, I don't want to make it sound like I'm reinventing the wheel here. A lot of commentators do point to this verse as, again, being completely fulfilled in the second coming. And we can see that again in Revelation. We know that when Christ comes again in the battle of Armageddon, his saints will be with him in the holy garments. And we do see that language again there. But friends, like I said, Psalm 110 is like a breathing, living document. There's parts of this prophecy they're living out now, and I think they're giving the Holy Spirit is designed that and doing that to give us a taste and a foreknowledge of things to come to. So that's a beautiful illustration of the faith. And it should be noted too, and I didn't underline this and I wish I had, but uh, in the day of your power, in a couple of verses now, uh, from now, we're going to look at the day of wrath. But right now we're talking about the day of power. So when David seems to separate the two a little bit, and I did all kinds of Hebrew and Greek research on this word and trying to figure it out and uh, thinking, you know, I could clinch it and figure out the mysteries of this. Now, power just means power. But you know where else power is used at in the Bible? Where Jesus' power was demonstrated the most when he walked this earth was in his resurrection from the dead. Jesus' power over death. And I think that's the, the power that we're looking at here. Is that it, right now in this church age, we're living in light of the power of the resurrection. You look at the, the New Testament epistles, you look at how much Paul uh, labored over this point about the resurrection. Um, 
because you didn't see Paul telling the, the, the churches, uh, if the Last Supper uh, was a lie, then we are to be most pitied. Did you? Or if Jesus' parables were all lies, we are to be most pitied. No, if Jesus' resurrection is a lie, we are to be the most pitiable people on this earth. It's all in the power of the resurrection. And that was, we, we think of the first century church, what catapulted everything. The 3,000 believers on the day of Pentecost, as the, as the apostles are going into the streets to preach the gospel, they were talking about Jesus, who they saw as raised from the dead, who they saw got killed. This isn't a clever ruse. This isn't a, a fancy myth. As Peter says, this is the reality of the resurrection. And that was the most powerful testimony to Jesus being the Messiah and brought many, many into the church in that first century and still does today. And that's an easy fact for us to kind of overlook today, right? It's kind of easy to, to think, yeah, the resurrection, that was cool. You know, it's easy to view flippantly because we're studying scripture and we're reading all these miracles and everything. It's almost just like one more thing that just kind of happened. But really, friends, it is a miracle beyond miracles that that happened in real life 2,000 years ago. And the bottom part of this verse here, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Brings you back to the point that I, um, uh, that I made earlier, that this is a book of poetry, right? And it's really fun to study the Psalms because uh, Hebrew poetry is really interesting. They, they do all kinds of varieties with different devices, and uh, it's a lot like reading poems today. I don't know if any of you are fans of poems, but I am. I, I like reading them. Um, I, I'm not that great at writing them. You know, I've tried, but there's, there's a little nuance there that I think escapes me. But uh, um, I'm glad people can. But there's this beautiful imagery here that we see. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. I, uh, I grew up in the Boy Scouts and uh, um, spent a lot of time camping, and I enjoy camping. And, and one thing, uh, camping with my dad um, and, and with the troop, that, uh, that my dad always taught me to pay attention to was you open the door of the tent in the morning, you know. And uh, nowadays, I, my first instinct is to go grab a cup of coffee. Um, but right before that, you can look out. And if you wake up at just the right time, you can see the sun catching the light in the dew. And you open that tent door and you look out. And when you're, when you're there outside, everything is covered in dew especially on those nice dewy mornings of early spring or like late fall when the, the, there's a little bit of fog too. And you can see the light cascading down in through the trees and playing and, and making this everything look pure and fresh like the day is just ready to start. And that's the imagery the Holy Spirit uses to describe the church. Fresh and pure. Throughout the whole centuries of our existence, um, as a body of believers, we're rejuvenated every time new believers come along and into the fold, and we rejoice with them. And we continue this, this sense of rejuvenation, just like in the morning, every morning that dew comes and settles on the ground and looks so beautiful and is so vast and countless, so too is the church. What a beautiful, beautiful picture that is. And so in verse 3, we see Christ. I want to back up because I want to make this point good. We see Christ as firstborn, right? Even though this is about Christ's people, even though this is about the Messiah's people, we know that the Messiah is the firstborn among the resurrection, right? He's the firstborn among many. The, the book of Hebrews, we're, um, I've been spending a lot of time in recently, um, which by the way, 
shameless plug, if you're not doing anything Wednesday nights and this is all very interesting to you, 6.30, Timothy Building, love to have you. It's a great study. Um, we have a lot of fun, good fellowship. And, um, but no, the, the, the book of Hebrews even uh, goes to some length to describe Jesus as the forerunner, as the firstborn amongst the resurrected, right? And so if we think of that in this term, we can see that in Jesus as well. Because he offered himself freely, just as we offer ourselves freely. In the day of his power, his power was on display in holy garments. There is none holier than Jesus, right? The Son of God, the very Son of God. And that's a very beautiful picture there. So Christ as the firstborn. Now here's the verse that brought me to this psalm altogether, right? Going through the book of Hebrews. Um, the book of Hebrews was written to a group of, uh, of, of Jewish converts and they were just starting to feel the heat of persecution. And there's, a, uh, there's this idea that they're just about to go, maybe thinking about going back to their old ways, going back to the Old Testament ways, going back to Judaism to avoid all of this persecution. And the writer of Hebrews writes that epistle to encourage them uh, to hold on to that confession is in, in his language. And so he goes at great length in the, in the chapters, and this is where we're at in our study right now um, on Wednesday nights, is he explains this verse in great, great detail. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And if we look at this verse at just kind of face value, this verse almost doesn't fit with the rest of the psalm. Let me read to you Psalm 110 without verse 4. Don't scratch it out in your Bibles. It's an important verse. Hang on. Keep your pens still. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Sounds like one cohesive thought, right? Without verse 4 thrown in the mix, we're talking about a king. We're talking about a king and the king's coming and the king's going to conquer. So, all right, that's pretty cool. But then for some reason, verse 4 is included. We got this weird little thing about a priest in there. Right? And I think this made the Old Testament Jews scratch their head too. And I think it made David scratch his head probably too as he's pondering how in the world could this be that the Messiah would be a priest as well as a king. This is a, this is a, a, a topic that's a little foreign to us as we, uh, most of us are not familiar uh, with kings or priests uh, in our day-to-day -day lives. And we're especially not familiar with it in the way that the Old Testament Jews would have been. Because the king, the, the office of the king and the office of the priest were two totally separate things. God kept those two things separate. And any time a king kind of started to mosey over here and try and take over the role of the priest, God would shut him down. So this is kind of a weird concept. This is a, this is a novel thought that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, talking to the Messiah, that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we know too that people struggled with this because... Uh, we found archaeologically, if you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran, there's evidence that that sect of Jewish believers there thought that there might be two messiahs coming. A messiah that would be a king and a messiah that would be a priest. 
And you can't quite fault them for that, can you? Because they are two totally separate things. Except for my friend, Melchizedek. All right? Melchizedek, uh, he is a unique guy in Scripture and one of my favorite characters in all the Bible because it's just so strange to me. Right? Uh, you could put all of um, the verses that have uh, reference to Melchizedek in the Old Testament. I think they, they are less than four, right? Like three and a half, kind of. Okay? So, they, so Melchizedek is a character that shows up in the life of Abraham, right? There's the, the uh, Abraham has to go rescue Lot. And so Lot's taken up north by these by these bandit kings, and they come by, and they kidnap Lot, and they take him up, and the servant escapes. He finds Abram, 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 your nephew Lot's been taken. Abram's not going to take that land down, so he grabs the guys that he's gotten under his command, goes up there, beats the tar out of them, comes back, and who does he meet? Melchizedek. And we know that Melchizedek is the king of Salem. But this is interesting. I want to read to you. And this is really brief. I want to read to you what Scripture says of Melchizedek. And if you want a reference point, uh, jot this down. Genesis 14, verse 18, and then through the rest of the chapter there. And this is verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. And that's Melchizedek. (laughs) That's who we know what we know about Melchizedek. And Melchizedek then in the next two verses is just him talking um, and delivering uh, these blessings to Abram. And then Abram gives him a tenth of everything. A fact that is uh, greatly explained in the book of Hebrews that I have no time to explain to you today. Because you will all be very hungry by the time I am done with that. But Melchizedek is interesting because he is a priest of God most high. So Abram meets this king, this king priest, who's not of the covenant, right? Because the covenant of Israel comes to Abram's seed. So Abram and his children are all, that, that's all God's covenant. But this guy outside the covenant is there, and he is a priest of God most high and a king of Salem. And David gives us that picture right there, through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, that to the Messiah you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so if he's after the order of Melchizedek, The Messiah is not a priest after the order of Aaron, which was the Old Testament priesthood, right? And it was, uh, you read the requirements for Old Testament priests, and they all had to do with the physical. You had to be descended from Aaron. You had to be a certain age, because you could only serve from like uh, about age 20 to 50. And then you had to do these certain tasks. And you could, it doesn't matter if you were a real um, dirt ball or not, you could still be a priest because you met all the qualifications of it. Good job. But that's not Melchizedek's priesthood. Because we know by Melchizedek's very name that he, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And also king of Salem could be translated into shalom, which of course means king of peace. So, G, so the Holy Spirit, in his infinite wisdom, put a little nugget in Genesis 14. Centuries go by. David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes out Psalm 110. Drops a little bit of a more nugget, more centuries go by, Jesus shows up. And now we know exactly what he means by pointing us to Melchizedek. Because Jesus is both the fulfillment of the kingly line and the fulfillment of the priestly line. And that is such 
I don't mean to belabor this point, but that is the biggest encouragement to us today is that in the words of Hebrews, and I'll pull this up right now. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. We have that high priest and we know that he is active. And I know that I can rely on him because I can't rely on myself. I may look pretty good right now, uh, you know, dressed up in my nicest suit, standing up here in front of a pulpit with a Bible open to you. But friends, let me tell you, the demons know where to find me, okay? I still struggle with sin. They know where to get me at my weakest. They know right right where the temptation needs to go, all right? And if it wasn't for my great high priest, I would be utterly, utterly lost. Because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And when Brandon Howard sins and the accuser comes, because that's Satan's name, literally means the accuser. And the accuser comes before the throne and tries to accuse me. Jesus says, no, his sins were paid for. And that is why we have such a great high priest. That is why we come to him in prayer time and again. That is why, if you haven't yet today, don't leave today without giving yourself freely to this Savior who wishes to save you, who longs to save you, who chases after you. In Isaiah's words, has your name engraved upon his hand. This is the greatest gift that he can offer and the greatest sacrifice, which was his own. So we see in verse 4, Christ as priest. Which brings us to this last section. Little heavy stuff, right? Okay, we can kind of recognize this for what it is. We got a lot of blood and guts language going on here. And scripture has that from time to time. So we don't need to whitewash it. We don't need to to talk anything about this. Um, So let's just go through it and, and figure out what it's saying. First of all, to kick off this section, I put it all together on the slide because it's kind of one continuous thought here. So this is verses five through seven. The Lord. Which Lord are we talking about now? Jehovah or Adonai? Yep. Adonai. This is Adonai. This is Jesus. So in the action leading up to this in the Psalms, we've been seeing Jehovah take the action. He's stretching forth the strong scepter. He's saying to the Lord, sit at my right hand. He's swearing and not changing his mind that you're a priest forever. Now we see the action from Adonai, from Jesus. All right. The Lord is at your right hand. And what's he going to do? He's going to shatter kings on the day of his wrath. All right? And that, that verbiage there, that shatter, that should evoke an imagery, right? If I, um, I don't know, take this uh, uh, music stand here and throw it to that window, you're not going to be able to replace that window, I don't think. Right, Derek? Where you at? Probably not, I'm guessing. Because you're going to shatter it beyond repair, right? It's in a million pieces. You can't put that thing back together. And that's the language used here to refer to the kings, all right? The Lord is going to utterly shatter them. He will utterly vanquish them on the day of his wrath. And before you feel too bad for the kings, because that's, uh, we, we'd like to, because again, this is heavy language. This is heavy stuff. Before you feel bad for those kings, remember that those kings stand in opposition freely. They want to try and fight the Messiah. And we know that when the battle of Armageddon plays out, the kings are surrounding Israel, right? 
and they're ready to move in. They're standing against God. No matter what, all the stuff that happened uh, during the tribulation and all those things, all those terrible things, all those chances to repent, they ignored every single one, and they're ready for war. They're trying to make war with Jesus. So this is not, there's no innocence involved in these kings. This is not big, mean Jesus coming down the line and conquering these kings and these poor guys, you know, they never stood a chance. Well, they never stood a chance, but they never took their chance for salvation. So those are the kings that will execute on the day of his wrath. We know the wrath of God is coming. And we know that the wrath of God hasn't come yet because of the mercies of God, right? Jesus hasn't, and, and God is working out a plan throughout all of human history to save to the uttermost every single human possible. That is why we have not seen the second coming yet. He is saving to the uttermost of the earth, and praise God for that. What an amazing display of love. Because again, as we saw in the end of Matthew, Jesus has been given all authority. He is the rightful king. He's the rightful ruler. He owns this place. But he's waiting in patience, trying to save as many as possible that will come to him. And that brings me to this point. He will execute judgment among the nations. And depending on the translations there, that tends to carry a little negative converse, uh, um, connotation there, right? We always think of judgment as being bad. But is it really? Because judgment, you're judging that person. And we see throughout Scripture, we see throughout uh, Jesus' ministries and the parables that Jesus will exercise judgment. He knows who is his and he knows who is not his. He will separate the wheat from the tares. He will separate the goats from the sheep. That's executing judgment. So there is a righteous judgment in that. This isn't just proclaiming judgment and pouring it out, which, I mean, there's a lot, don't get me wrong, a lot of judgment and wrath, as it says, being poured out in the second coming. But he knows who is his and he knows who is not. And so when they come before the judgment seat of Christ, the ones that say, Lord, Lord, and he says, cast aside and says, I never knew you, that's exercising judgment. But he knows the ones who know him. And this, is, uh, this goes on. Filling them with corpses, shattering chiefs over the wide earth. This, uh, this language here reminds me, um, anybody been to any Civil War battle sites? Any battlefields? Anybody? All right. I've got a lot on my laundry list, so if you guys want to get together and take a trip together, I'd love to go. I don't know who wants to go with me in my family. I'm not too sure. But... I love that stuff, and so I, I, uh, I visited the, the battlefield of Gettysburg uh, in Pennsylvania when I was young. Uh, took a trip with the Boy Scouts. We went to the National Jamboree, which is in a Fort AP Hill, Virginia, and then we kind of did a tour of D.C. after that was done, and then we, we ended up there in, in Gettysburg. And I'll never forget the, the reality that that drove home, being there on that battlefield, because I, I like history and I like reading things and I like studying documentaries and things like that. But until you're there and you look at the place where this happened, it takes on a whole new shape. Because we were there, we had a guided tour and so the tour guide standing there. And I think, I, I could be wrong, I think this was Pickett's Charge. Big wide open field, right? And uh, I'm, a, I'm not a farmer, terrible at acreage estimations. But I would say if, you, if you're driving along Highway 34 and you know the turn off to Danville, there's those big open fields on both sides of the highway. 
It about looked like that, just this big, wide, open area, right? And the tour guide called our attention to this big, wide, open field of nothingness. So it terminated over there somewhere in the trees. But he said, we have accounts from that day after the battle that you could walk from this end of the field to the other without ever setting foot on the ground. There were that many corpses at the Battle of Gettysburg. And that, whoo, that hit home. That, was, that made it real then. You read all the numbers and statistics from the Civil War, but until you're there seeing the field itself and looking out and seeing and just imagining those poor, poor men all splayed out there, dead across that field, was really something. And that's the, that's the language we use here, friends. This is going to be a real battle. This is going to be a real war coming when the second coming of Christ. He's coming as a conqueror, right? He's coming to put down the rebellion at last on his, on his earth. And so uh, just, just be aware that that's a widespread, widespread worldwide thing. And we know, too, that uh, from this language at the bottom, kind of different language, but it would have been familiar to kings of antiquity, to, to guys like David. So he'll drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. So if you were a king in antiquity, you would go, you would have a campaign path set out, right? And you'd have your big, strong, you'd have all your armies and all, all these things and supply trains, and you'd go out on your campaign trail. And you'd be doing the battles and, and conquering and moving right along. And then you'd have to set up camp at some point, right? So you'd some set up some camp over here. And as was customary, kings and generals, I mean, they're in charge of a lot. They got a lot of stress going on. So they might be able to go into a nearby city, relax, you know, catch up, refuel, drink some wine, eat some bread, just relax, right? That's not the picture we get here of our Savior. When he starts this process, he's going to finish it. He's going to drink from the brook, by the way. He's not going to stop and take a water break over there in this other city over here. He's going to keep going on that campaign trail to see it through to the utmost. And therefore, he will lift up his head and it will be completed. So we see in these last verses here, Christ is conqueror, Christ is judge, but more importantly, overall, Christ as victor. He will win the day. So let me ask you again, who do you know Jesus to be? Who do you know Jesus to be? Is he still theoretical for you? Is he still a historical figure that uh, existed 2,000 years ago? Pretty good teacher, nice guy. You know, had some good things to say about humanitarian aid and Samaritans and some other nice things. Or do you know him as he is now, seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven and coming again? Friends, I urge you if, you, if you haven't already, make the most important decision in your life. You know who Jesus is. I just laid it all out, and David did before me in Psalm 110, and the Holy Spirit used him to great effect that way. You know who Jesus is. Who are you going to be in relation to Jesus? Ask yourself that. Are you going to be a subject? Are you going to freely submit yourself to that? Are you going to trust in your good works over, and, and hope that you get to heaven or are you going to know for sure that you are safe and secure in the arms of that great high priest there that loves you and that is waiting and willing and chasing after you to submit to him to save you?
So we see Christ in three ways, king, priest, and victor. And that's who he is right now, 2019. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that we have a firm foundation to stand on with this word. This isn't, these aren't things that, that I have to make up this morning. This isn't anything like that. This is your word, that we know that your word is trustworthy and that all scripture is God-breathed. And we're just so thankful for that. We pray for those, Lord, that might be visiting us today that don't know the Savior uh, as we do. We just pray that uh, you work in their hearts and convict them and uh, just have them reach out to somebody so that way we can, we can pray with them and get that account settled. And for those of us here that do know the Savior, Lord, we just pray that we can live in such a way that our Savior is alive, that he reigns forevermore and that we are with him. And we just pray all these things in his holy name. Amen.